I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no hyperbole. This is the shocking truth. Okay, a little hyperbole. Today, we're going to look at one of the lesser-known contactees, even by the standards of most contactees being lesser-known figures in the you know grand scheme of things. While he began having his experiences as a youth in the 1920s, he did not compose his account until the late 1960s. And although it really didn't gain a lot of traction or attention— This was exactly the wrong time to try to get traction as a contactee, really. It's an interesting story. Actually, it's far more interesting than I thought it would be. While the contactee aspects are a little out of date by the late 1960s, he draws connections to alien colonization of the Earth that would be very much in vogue during the 1970s and afterward. And he does update some of the the social and political concerns that contactees have for Uh, for the time in which he presents it. And there's some other weird stuff going on. This is an interesting story. Let's take a look. So while Albert Coe doesn't tell us his birthday in The Shocking Truth, what public records I found suggest he was born in 1905. He reported a series of encounters with a friend from space between 1920 and the 1970s. Uh, Some of these encounters were in person. Some of them, um, especially later on, were by letter, like letter that was sent in the mail. I'll be reiterating that because it's so strange. He did not discuss these matters publicly or even privately with his wife, for example, until the late 1960s with his privately published booklet, The Shocking Truth. So let's look at The Shocking Truth. It's got some wonderful black and white illustrations. The um, the image for this episode on the website and in your podcast app, if it does that, um, is the cover. And uh, they're, they're neat. They're sort of pencil They're sort of impressionistic, which is a good adjective to use when stuff is kind of blurry and indistinct, right? Um, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on here. Well, that's because it's impressionistic. And it begins with a dedication. I dedicate this book to Hazel Simpson, whose understanding and cooperation have contributed so deeply to the inspiration of its structure. The beauty of thought will forever extol the virtue of womanhood as, from their hearts, flow the eternal breath of life. I'm not sure who Hazel Simpson is. Based on some of the things Coe writes in his book about where he lived at various times, the records I've found indicated that his wife's name was probably Pearl. So Hazel's not his wife. Unless I'm wrong, which I might be. Um, If anybody knows Albert Coe's family tree... um, you know where to find me. Next, there's a quotation from Thomas Jefferson. Yes, that Thomas Jefferson, which is a little odd. Just not the quote. It's just oddly placed a little bit. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. I'm not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truth discovered, and manners and opinions change, with the change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. We might as well require a man to wear still the coat which fitted him while a boy, as civilized society to remain even under the regimen of their barbarous ancestors. 
our staff Jefferson expert here at Chizo Media, yes, we have one. Seriously, we do. Tells me that this is from a letter from Jefferson to James Madison about the importance of general constitutions as opposed to, to deeply specific constitutions. And um, at the time had little to nothing to do with aliens. However, Coe will go on to draw a broad point in this quotation, telling us that his space friends people understand the importance of seeking new knowledge and um, how things must adjust once new knowledge is found. And there's some consistency here in this quote with typical contactee calls for humanity to evolve and develop. So man will keep humanity, will keep evolving and changing um, away from barbarism into more civilized society. Um, I can actually see this quote being put there. I'm just it just sort of surprised me. The book itself begins with Coe stating what his purpose is in writing it. The intent of this book is to bring a fuller comprehension, a more concise definition of the evolutionary necessity of readjustment, by an introduction to a race of people whose origins, although foreign to our solar system, are not unlike us in physical appearance, and who, from their own tiny niche of this infinite whole, have established a certain truer conformity to these ideals. These space people have been observing humanity for a long time, and the 20th century saw an uptick in their visitations. We'll see some reasons for this later on, but things began to heat up longer ago than we might expect. In 1904, they paved the way for 100 of their specially trained observers and infiltrated them as small groups of technicians in every major country of Earth. Their job was to watch and evaluate each step of our scientific advancement. The later prolific appearance of the UFO is contemporary to our research in Atoms for Bombs, as they set in motion the conclusion of years of study to offset the probability of a runaway nuclear device, triggering the detonation of the greatest bomb of all times, Earth itself. Again, very consistent with um, with contactee lore of, of the aliens being worried about nuclear proliferation and, and atomic destruction raining down upon humanity and affecting the cosmos itself. It's just with this, we see the aliens showing up at the dawn of the 20th century. And, and, and again, we get to that later in the book a little bit more. So for Albert, things begin in June of 1920 when he and his friend Rod were um, on a canoeing trip to Canada from their home in Hastings on Hudson, New York, which is where my dad is from. It's a synchronicity. Oh my gosh. And I had a friend in high school named Rod. Oh my gosh. Real synchronicity. Oh my gosh. And when I was the same age Albert was when he was on his trip, I went on a canoeing trip in Canada. This is the most amazing series of synchronicities I've ever seen. Not really. It's just a coincidence, which are actual things, you know? Anyway, they're on this canoe and camping expedition, and while making their way cross-country, Albert encounters a man who's fallen down a crevasse and was wedged in the rock, sort of five feet down between two giant boulders in this, this crack in the earth. Albert helps the guy out and notices that he's dressed a little bit oddly. He was wearing an odd silver-gray tight jumper-type garment that had a sheen of silk to it. It had a leathery feeling without a belt or visible fasteners attached, but just under the chest was a small instrument panel. Several of the knobs and dials were broken from being jammed against the rock in his fall. Being so many miles from any form of civilization, I pointedly asked where he was from, if he was on a canoe trip also, when and what had happened to cause his misfortune. Well, he's not canoeing. He has, he says, a plane nearby. He was, however, fishing. Seriously. 
Albert is a little confused by all this and is even more confused when he sees the fishing rod. The butt was about three quarters of an inch in diameter and had the same leathery touch as his suit, but bright blue and formed a slight rounded protuberance just above it. It had a tiny slot on either side and continuance in a slender aluminum-like shaft. It had no guides or reel, for the line came directly out from the inside at its tip, as a fine filament to which was attached a conventional dry fly. I asked where he had purchased such a rod, and the question was partially parried with a reply that his father was a research engineer, and it was one of his own design. Space fishing rod. Not Albert's friend rod, like a fishing pole, you know. Albert helps the man back to his aircraft and is astounded by what he sees. I had fully expected to see some type of conventional aircraft, and the reason for the reluctance in my accompanying him became crystal clear, for what I was looking at astounded me. A round silver disc about 20 feet in diameter was standing on three legs in the form of a tripod, without propeller, engine, wings, or fuselage. As we approached, I noticed a number of small slots around the rim, and it sloped up to a rounded central dome. I had to duck to walk with him underneath, between the legs, although it was slightly concave and only about four and a half feet from the ground. He said, surprised? That wasn't actually the word for it, but I did not press him with questions, realizing he was suffering a great deal of pain. He reached into the end of one of three recesses in its bottom that fanned centerwise from the base of each leg, pressed a button, and a door swung down with two ladder rungs molded on its inner surface. I clasped my hands under his good foot and boosted him in. He peered down at me over the rim of the opening and said, I will never forget you for this day. Remember to keep your promise and stand clear when I take off. That promise was to not tell anybody what he had seen. Albert and Rod finished their camping trip. And they were gone a long time. They, they got home a week late for the beginning of the school year. And um, from sort of reading between the lines, it sounds like they were gone for about three months, which I guess you could do when you were a teenager back in 1920. It would be several months before he heard from his new friend again, and Albert began to despair and sometimes wondered if the encounter had really happened at all. But he sees glimmers in the sky that convinced him of the reality of their meeting. I knew then that all I had experienced was very real and made a silent vow never to break my promise unless released from it. My new friend was rapidly assuming the romantic status in a young, impressionable mind of a good luck genie or wood sprite who had come to test me. Then, finally, he hears something. I had been home three months, and it was almost six months since my initial encounter with the stranger and was beginning to think he had forgotten about me, when on Tuesday, in the second week of December, I received a letter signed Zretzim, asking me to meet him in the lobby of the Hotel McAlpine at 12.30 on the following Saturday and have lunch together. My heart skipped a few beats as I read and reread that letter. Saturday did not seem that it would ever wanted to arrive, but when it did finally come, I was all spruced up and ready to go by 8.30 in the morning, even though my train did not leave until 11. Mother remarked that I really must have an extra special date. Okay, a few things here. We'll see some other hints, but I think mom's onto something here. There's something about this that seems far more interpersonal and... I don't want to say romantic, but there's a, an affectionate personal connection here that you just don't see in most contact stories. Also, Zretsim, uh, spelled X-R-E-T-S-I-M, uh, the alien's name or the person's name. Um, we don't know he's an alien yet. Shoot, sort of 
spoiled that. It's Mr. X spelled backwards. They literally spell this out later in the book, but yes, Mr. X. But they don't make a big deal of it, and in the few references to Ko's story that are out there, they simply refer to the alien by the preferred diminutive that's used in the book, uh, Zret, X-R-E-T, although it is sometimes spelled Z-R-E-T, confusingly. Over lunch, Zret doesn't tell Albert much about himself, but there's a promise to meet in the future for a fishing contest. A fishing contest? Yes. A fishing contest. After lunch, he told me I would not hear from him for the next two or three months, but promised a fishing contest on the first nice Saturday of spring. The general trend of conversation was a little disappointing, for I had wanted so much to know all about his little plane, where he lived, and his activities. I realized he purposely avoided being led into any real information concerning himself, although I somehow sensed a very strong mutual bond between us. As he left, he turned with a knowing look, saying, In time, all your unasked questions will be answered. For of all the men on this planet, you are my life. This salient fact is unforgettable. I did not think I had done anything so great until I later learned how close he was to the abyss of death without a glimmer of hope on that faithful day. Of all the men on this planet, you are my life. Apart from Howard Menger-like blatant saucer romances, have we seen this kind of personal connection? Um, And there's a secrecy here that's a little troubling to me, too. He questioned whether I had mentioned him to my parents, but my answer was no and never would. He was a very deep, cherished secret, and this knowledge I had would be guarded as though it were the map to a buried treasure. He laughed. You really are a romanticist, aren't you? Your blonde hair, blue eyes, the feeling of compassion and the great sense of beauty that you find in nature are almost identical to my own features and character. They mark you as a true throwback to my ancient ancestors who discovered these lands so long ago. Hey kid, don't tell anybody about this. Now based on what I think I know of Albert's age, he would have been about 15 or 16 at this time. Um, So some aspects of this seem a little uncomfortably close to an older person grooming a younger person. At one point, um, Zret sent him one of the alien fishing rods as a gift, but told him not to show his parents. So gifts, taking him out to dinner, um, telling him not to tell anybody about this. I don't know. Of course, I watch a lot of Law & Order SVU, so I'm automatically suspicious of everything. All of this also sets up what would be a lifetime of contact between Albert and Zret, because Zret lives for hundreds of years, so he's sort of a constant throughout Albert's life. And information would be trickled out little by little throughout Albert's life. And in the book, um, certain parts of the the narrative and the information about Zret and his people, um, he, he sort of says, this is from letter five in 1966, or letter four in 1952, or whatever. So that is is part of how the narrative is put together. So this information is trickling out. So what is this information? Um, the, uh, the, the trickling, not sure, not sure that's the best way to phrase that. Um, the information trickling begins on their fishing trip. Zaret was one of a group who was observing humanity's scientific advancement, um, the group that started in 1904. And Zaret was so impressed with Albert's rescue of him that he petitioned the ruling council of his people for permission to educate Albert. 
they agreed, and here we are. And Zaret begins this education by explaining where he's from. Our home is quite simple to explain and is actually two worlds. One, the planet Mars, nearing the end of an evolutionary life, and the other, planet Venus, younger in evolutionary processes than Earth, but its higher regions are not too drastically different than the environment here. The long and intricate details will have to await future discussion. So, they're from both planets? After several pages of, um, pretty impenetrable pseudoscience, Zret finally explains a little bit more about his people's origins. Mars is actually the ancestral stepping stone that some 14,000 years ago gave the chance of life to a pitiful few that survived this transmigration of solar systems and will always hold a spot of deep affection in our hearts. If it were not for this unique little planet, an entire race of beings would have perished and lost its place in this scheme of things forever. A spark of life returned to the oblivion of its energy source. So, they weren't from Mars or Venus originally? On their next trip, another canoe and fishing expedition, Zaret would reveal more. And it is this, in fact, that makes up the shocking truth. Next time, we're going to be uh, closer to the present as we look at something which may or may not have existed called Project Preserve Destiny and the claims of a guy named Dan Sherman. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes as well. Thank you very much to those who've donated in the past. It's, it's very much appreciated. We're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And uh, we received an interesting book recently in the mail from a listener. And it's a book that was mentioned in a previous uh, zine scene episode, I think our 70s zine scene episode. So be on the lookout for an examination of that. And I, I do just want to um, say how much I appreciate that you listen, um, if you are, and, uh, and, and the feedback I've gotten, it, um, it really helps me sort of, sort of keep going with it. Even, you know, even here in 2020, when things have been, uh, pretty chaotic. And so on that note, if you hear any creaking, walking around, yelling, talking, um, some circumstances have led to there being more people in my house um, at the times when I record than I'm used to. So uh, I'll try to minimize it, but um, we'll see uh, We'll see what we can do. But um, working on this has, uh, has helped make 2020 a little more tolerable, and I hope listening to it has for you as well. Uh, the Saucer Life, as I always say, is available anywhere you can find podcasts, including soon, I believe, on Amazon Music. Um, why would you want to listen to podcasts on Amazon Music? I, I, so you can boss Alexa around, I suppose. Um, I'm looking forward to that at some point. Alexa, play The Saucer Life. Wow, that would be amazing. Anyway, let's get back to it. And this was a brief edit as the Amazon device in my office slash studio started talking when I said her name. Ugh. The Internet of Things will doom us all. And now back to the show for real. So you want the shocking truth? Here we go. Originally, Zret's people came from Norca, a planet in the Tau Ceti system. Far back in time, Norca began to get colder and their leaders had to acknowledge that they must migrate to a new home. 
It took 58 years for their ships to reach our solar system. Several crashed, including two crashing into Jupiter, um, one into Venus, and one into Mars. But there was another ship that crash-landed on Mars, and all of the several thousand um, passengers on that ship survived. And these survivors of the doomed planet Norica established themselves on Mars, um, and over the centuries developed a new civilization, a, a new home. And they eventually traveled to Venus, where they established a base, and Earth, where they observed early humanity. We classified the natives in five major groups according to skin pigmentation. Oh, for crying out loud, here we go. Isn't it always the way? <sighs> we classified the natives in five major groups according to skin pigmentation. The golden race, by far the more numerous, inhabiting the land east of southern Europe, across Asia and Lemuria, almost to the shores of Central America. The white race in Greenland, across northern and central Europe and Asia to Siberia. The copper race, from Siberia to the tip of South America. The blue race, in central and northern Atlantis and across north-central Africa. The black race, southern Atlantis and Africa to Borneo. The races had one characteristic in common. All had black hair and their eyes varied from light brown to black. Okay, maybe I harumphed a little early. That's, you know, at least he didn't make, you know, the, the blondes were in Northern Europe, uh, that sort of thing. Although there is a bit of this um, sort of root race stuff going on here. So the Norkins colonize Earth and establish cities in their base in Atlantis and bases, main bases in Atlantis and Lemuria, but also cities in the Marshall Islands, Peru, Lebanon, and Tibet. And over the centuries, they grew and advanced, living in harmony with the primitive but developing Earthlings. And the Norkans established rules and order on the Earth. Killing in any manner was absolutely forbidden, with a penalty of banishment forever to a remote and inaccessible part of the land. The only penalties invoked for disobedience to and the breaking of the rules was to rescind the right to work, the participation in social activities or banishment to the forest, to forage for themselves for periods of time in respect to the severity of the infraction. In twenty years, through patience, tolerance, and a philosophy founded on the beauty of thought and of love and in the education of the children, in these principles, we had developed five intelligent and culturally advanced communities. They had learned to cultivate the land and the rudiments of animal husbandry, for we had introduced cotton, corn, wheat, barley, beans, yams, potatoes, apples, and plums. The horse, the dairy cow, sheep, the greyhound, and house cat, and they were also becoming adept in many of the arts and crafts. As security replaced want and negative thinking, their fear of spirits gradually disappeared. We colonized on the basis of equality to all, with no distinction as to race or color, and our only superior was that of teachers and guides in a new way of life. Your white race has always been the more aggressive, and giving a subtle feeling of contemptuous tolerance in their dealing with others. I love that. Contemptuous tolerance would be a great title for a book about colonialism. Good thing the Norcans weren't careless in their imperial endeavors and were always beloved by humans. Oh, wait. Treachery was not in our minds, but a few incidents did occur during the next 40 years which should have put us on guard. The first came in the form of resentment to our private centers used for visitors and councils from the motherland. Viciousness often invaded the competitive games, an apparent stray arrow would find its mark in one of our people at an archery contest. Many of our scientists researching metal, propulsion, rays, and electronics preferred to work in seclusion, 
and this request had always been honored by our people, but not so with your ancestors, for they felt that they were being barred, although they had access to every principle but one, and were working on a majority of projects with our scientists. The one principle which was not divulged, the breakdown of the atomic structure of matter, and it had been a closely guarded secret since its development, for although its benefits were many, it also had a potential force to destroy, even to a planet if used unwisely. Well, they're being awfully contemptuous of humans by keeping the secret from them. I have a feeling this isn't going to end well. During the next few years, agitation arose from these and other imagined grievances. Societies were formed from which we were banned, and rumors were spreading as to our foreign status, invaders from another land. In the past, we had adopted a magnanimous attitude toward the little differences, petty jealousies, and flare-ups. We did not realize that the urge of nationalism, the lust for conquest, had not been erased, but merely lay dormant in their emotional character. Now they were well-educated, versed in the sciences, engineering, the arts and crafts, had elected leaders, and ruling councils who apparently decided that we had outlived our usefulness. We could no longer ignore these rumors. The veiled threats and incidents led an investigating committee to be organized to determine the extent of their plan, the ultimate aim, and the intended method to achieve its conclusion. A good portion of the populace was still loyal, and we soon uncovered the operational strategy of its scheme. A plan of staggering magnitude, for we had been completely unaware of the theft of the formula of disintegration by means of a trick of light refraction, and it was being used to fashion devices, destruction, and conquest. So this is a basic 1960s style anti-colonial uprising that's happening on the earth. And Ko here is casting the imperialists as the good guys who just aren't appreciated by the, uh, the people who they've helped and uplifted. Um, wow. So what happens? Through haste, error in construction design, or lack of preconceived method of control, the world literally came to an end. The main concentration of power was directed at our centers of Atlantis and Lemuria, by far the largest and most graceful of all our artistic creations in this new world. Enchanted cities and communities of wondrous beauty, conceived in love and built for the joy, the comfort and expediency of all, a cultural excellence which has never again been equaled. The energy force waves traveled from north to south, swelling as they advanced, everything in its path turned to dust and disappeared. The natural land barriers disintegrated and the seas swept in, causing tremendous earthquakes and volcanic action. Entire continents exploded and were hurled into space. The Earth's orbital velocity quickened, and it skidded off on a slight tangent but stabilized a million miles further from the sun, and although its rotation did not cease, a new wobble added to the devastation, and the turbulence did not exhaust itself for many years. Approximately two-thirds of the planet was sheathed in ice. The greatest miracle of all was that a small percentage of life did, somehow, manage to survive. So the Norcans back on Mars and Venus decide to leave Earth alone. And, and at this point, I need to show or point out another parallel to something that would actually come later after this was written. But um, the 1977 Doctor Who story, Underworld, um, the, the premise of that is there's a, a race of, of people called the Minions who the Doctor's people, the Time Lords, uh, way back in the midst of time, decided to to help and and support with, um, with, with new uh, technology and um, and general advancements, and as a result, the minions destroyed themselves, uh, leading the uh, leading the time lords to um, sort of sit back and be observers rather than active participants. 
I'm not saying that that um, Anthony Anthony I think Anthony Root uh, wrote it. I'm not saying he looked back at Albert Coe's contactee story to come up with this idea, but it sort of illustrates that this kind of idea of advanced beings, um, advanced beings, gifts of technology uh, being sort of a negative in the long run. That's a, a sort of recurring theme in a lot of uh, a lot of science fiction and saucer fact. So, like I said, the Norcans back on the, the, the new home worlds of Mars and Venus decide to leave the Earth alone, but they do um, hope, to be fair, that a few survivors, some of whom have Norcan blood uh, because of some interbreeding, uh, they hope that these survivors will someday, their descendants will evolve into responsible, mature beings, and they would continue to monitor humanity. Which brings us sort of full circle back to the beginning, um, back to this, this sort of uptick in observation in the 20th century. Our calendar year was 1901, when 26 million miles distant, Zret and many of his colleagues were gathered in a conference hall to discuss an issue of vital importance with their governing council, an eminent body comprising 28 men and 28 women, each an elected representative of the 56 sciences. The topic of concentrated interest was this same Earth and its modern inhabitants. So why 1901? The upticks in violence and war, mainly. They discuss gunpowder and its potential for harm, but they acknowledge that it could not completely destroy humanity. The First World War seems to have justified their decision to watch us more carefully. They did, however, lay down some ground rules for their 100 observers. 1. Secrecy of identity was paramount. Intervention or instigation of any change in our way of life was strictly forbidden. 2. To willfully participate in armed conflict, to divulge any secret of physics or chemistry that may even remotely aid in an expansion of military potential, or to direct or assist in the planning of a military strategy was also forbidden. 3. No man of Earth was permitted entrance to a spacecraft. 4. Due to possibility of a maximum duration of this mission, marriage with Earth women was permitted, but a specific element in the chemistry of the body was electronically treated to prevent the occurrence of offspring. Permanent roots would not be tolerated. To always conduct themselves as gentlemen, and the mannerisms, thought, kindness, and tolerance of their own philosophies be extended in all dealings with our people and to assist in any invention or philosophy of our own creation that might bring a benefit of happiness to the races of Earth. So this requirement um, that you could marry Earth women, but um, the chemistry of the body was electronically treated to prevent the occurrence of offspring. That's interesting. Um, and it's interesting, and I didn't really think of this um, when I was scripting this, but I'm thinking of it right now. They don't specify whose body is going to be electronically treated, do they? Is this um, is this the, the Norcan observer men undergoing a kind of birth control procedure or are they surreptitiously sterilizing their human wives? That's an interesting question. Um, given, given the imperialistic overtones to the Norcan's uh, policies, I, uh, I think I know which one I suspect it might be. 
it's also interesting that only men were sent on these missions. They don't talk about women being able to take husbands. And there's a real Star Trekky vibe of the Prime Directive here too. Although it's not dissimilar to what we've seen with other contactees, it comes in 1969. Um, I'm fairly sure that uh, that Albert Coe was um, familiar with Star Trek. He seems like he would have been a Star Trek fan. The way a lot of this uh, pseudoscience in this book is prevented. And just so you know, I've excised a lot of the pseudoscience in the interest of staying awake. So the book ends with some warnings, and it's 1969, so there's some caution about overpopulation. Uh, Zaret denounces the, uh, the International Atoms for Peace program um, as being deceptive because atoms are never peaceful when humanity is involved because humanity is unable to control its destructive urges. There's also, in keeping with the times, more concern about the environment than we see in earlier contactee accounts. Man must, at least, temper his greed and the homage demanded by its avaricious god of profit. The highest priority on the planet today is a need of a complete study of ecology by all the world's brilliant scientists and analysis of their findings acted on immediately regardless of cost. Without an absolute understanding of the part in a human brain should play in its role of a symbolic pendulum regulating the entire environment, it may disappear in the flash of fusing atoms or to succumb through the insidious creeping death of unbalanced nature. Either eventuality will leave the great arsenals and sprawling factories rusting away on a desolate landscape as the planet Earth becomes a contemporary of its barren, lifeless satellite, the Moon. During the 1970s, Coe would give some radio interviews, he said, and in 1977, he was interviewed on tape by a psychologist, Dr. Berthold Schwartz. The interview is quoted um, by uh, British UFO writer Timothy Good in his book Alien Bases when he relays Coe's story, which is, I think, the only one of the only UFO books besides, I think, Jerome Clark's UFO encyclopedias. Um, that I've seen. I've not been able to find a copy of this interview. It's not even part of the extensive audio collections curated by Wendy Connors. So if anyone has it, let me know. Another thing is uh, I could find no record of this Berthold Schwartz. The only Berthold Schwartz I could find any information on was um, a late medieval slash early modern German uh, German alchemist who um, legend states uh, was the European who developed sort of the European version of gunpowder. So um, I wonder if Berthold Schwartz was, was a real name because, I don't know, that seems kind of odd to me. As far as I could tell, Albert Coe died in 1979. And the reason he was able to, um, to publish his book and, and tell his story when he had kept it secret from, for so long, including from his wife, is that, uh, is, is that the aliens had released him from his, uh, his obligation to keep keep the secret. And he doesn't really explain why. In the interview with Schwartz that's quoted in Good's book, he talks about how um, basically the men in black were always sort of hanging around wanting to find out who his friend was that he was talking to, um, which is, I think is an interesting touch. So my conclusions, I usually don't come to conclusions. So this will be one of the rare exceptions. My preferred chosen interpretation of the Albert Coe saga, if we take it sort of as read for the sake of argument that he was by and large telling the truth, if we make that allowance, I think this fits in very well with the late Mac Tony's crypto terrestrial notion. 
I don't believe Mac ever mentioned Co, which isn't surprising since Co's encounters were very rarely discussed, and when they were, they were usually lumped in with ancient astronaut theories. But let's look at it. Let's sort of this is point by point where I see some overlap between the the crypto terrestrial idea of a, a hidden offshoot of the human race existing side by side with us as a, a sort of explanation for some of the things people experience. Um, let's take that hypothesis and see how it matches up with Co. First, Zred is human, so that's a box ticked, but that's common of a lot of contactee stories. He's not a gray, he's not a hairy dwarf, he's not a weirdo robot, he's, he's human appearing. The level of technology, it's futuristic, but not outrageously so. And you may have noticed this, unless I read the book wrongly and, and presented it to you wrongly, but I don't think I did. He never actually goes in a flying saucer. He and Zrat go on mind journeys of some kind. That's the way that Zrat um, sort of, um, or Zret, Zrat, Zrat, I can't pronounce things. That's the way Zret sort of conveys this information and it's never explained super well it's not channeling it's more of a mind meld it's possible that jret's flying disc could make it to wherever his people were hiding out on earth but that it wasn't actually a spacecraft um next fishing the whole fishing motif and the general love of nature and outdoor activities that jret has it's very terrestrial um yes he's been on earth for i don't know 20 years at that point but um he seems like an earth guy who loves being out in nature. And related to that, the affection between the two men seems like either a genuine human connection or a long-term manipulation by someone who is familiar enough with human psychology to do a really good job at it. So it could also have been shady secret societies or um, intelligence organizations, not that we haven't seen um, that before. And the notion of the, the various races, the talk of Atlantis, Lemuria, and stuff is something that would have been in circulation in 1920. Uh, the ancient alien stuff borrowed heavily from earlier mythic ideas. So again, a, a very terrestrial thing, not necessarily a crypto-terrestrial one, but terrestrial. And Co received letters in the mail, not trips in a flying saucer, not psychic transmissions, letters in the mail. And there's a consistent concern, concern for the welfare not only of humanity, but for the planet itself, sensible for a being who shared the planet with us and was sort of, you know, at the mercy of whatever us regular humans were doing, regular terrestrials were doing to the planet. And one last thing, and I know how dumb and crazy and coincidental this sounds. Mac Tonys did not come up with the term crypto terrestrial. That word was coined by a frequent reader and commenter at Mac's post-human blues blog on April 3rd, 2006. His name? Mr. X. Spelled E-C-K-S, but Mr. X. Right? I want to think that the same being who communicated with Albert Coe was a fan of Mac's blog and was commenting regularly. Basically, if Coe was in contact with anyone, and he may have been, I bet they were from Earth. Whether they were crypto or normal terrestrial, who knows? Like I said at the outset, this is an interesting case, partly because it's so obscure, at least to me, but I, I should check again, but I don't think Adam Gorightly and Greg Bishop included him in their A for Adamski book, and that's kind of my benchmark for contact obscurity. 
Coe's book is long out of print and pretty expensive on the used market. Uh, Wendell Stevens, of course, did a ripoff edition of it, but the ebook is currently under review at Amazon and you can't buy it, probably because all of the Wendell Stevens ebooks are just scans of pages loaded as images into a file and converted to Kindle format and are almost unreadable. So I've included a, uh, a link to the PDF of the original book with the original illustrations if you want to read his story for yourself. Thanks for listening. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind, along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching out for guys who fall down ravines in Canada, because they've been watching us since 1904.